Good morning. I want to thank you for joining Redwood Christian Fellowship. Our last message in the book of Ruth is today. Next week, we're going to begin a summer series in the uh, book of uh, 1 Corinthians. We're going to do 1 Corinthians 13 bit by bit, and so we're going to work on that through the summer. Um, today, as we look at Ruth, we left off uh, discussing Naomi and and uh, uh, the the end of the chapter, chapter 4, and I want to pick up there again this morning. So as we begin, let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together. We ask, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts and our minds to receive from your word. You tell us that your Holy Spirit shows us what we need to know from your word at the time that we read it. And, Lord, I believe that all of us could be at a different spot and yet minister to by the same passage. So we ask, Lord, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would minister to us today. And uh, thank you for your word, that we have your God-breathed word to depend on and pray in Jesus name. Amen. So, like I said, we left off discussing Naomi uh, and in last week. And one of the things I wanted to kind of pick up with was in chapter one, uh, verse 21, Naomi had made the statement when she returned to Bethlehem. Uh, you recall that uh, her and her husband, Elimelech and her two sons went to Bethlehem to uh, Get out from underneath a famine in Beth, a famine in Israel and went to Moab. And while there, her sons married Moabite women and then her husband died. And then after that, her sons died, leaving her with two daughter-in-laws. She dismissed her daughter-in-laws, uh, to go back to their homes. One did and Ruth, the subject of this book, uh, decided, you know, told her that she wanted to stay with her and pleaded out with uh, one phrase that's really important, that her God would be, she said, I want your God to be my God, and a confession of, of a faith in the one true God at that point. So when Naomi gets home, she makes the statement that she left Bethlehem full, but returned empty. and. The idea of this leaving full was she had a full family. She had a husband, her sons, and, and all. And, and when she came back, she has no husband. She has no sons. And so she's returned empty. And this book is a book about how God brings things back together and restores, in addition to a number of other issues, talked about how God makes things come together. Uh, none of the book is happenstance, but but. God coordinating our steps so that these things come together, that at the end of the story, Ruth has her life restored in a special way. And so I want to look at verses uh, 13 through uh, 16 or 17 and uh, read them. Let's read them right now. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. 
Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood came, uh, gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Obed is the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. And we'll get to those in a, in a minute. That, that lineage is extremely important to discuss. But what I want you to see here more than anything is that Naomi was empty. Uh, she, she lost everything, basically. And it's now given this picture of restoration. And uh, even the, the people that know her uh, make that claim uh, that, that she's been restored. And she has the restorer of life, uh, a, a grandson. She puts the, the grandson in her lap, which is the picture of acceptance, and she becomes his nurse, the one who will nanny, if you will, the, the son and raise him. So left full, returned empty, and then restored and made full again through the Lord. And it is important to understand that when her and Elimelech and her sons left, they actually pulled themselves out from underneath the covering of God. And we're making their own decisions. Now that she's returned to the Lord, he restores her and gives her back uh, life in the sense of her grandson, Obed. And it is interesting to note that Obed is the father of, of Jesse, who's the father of David. And that puts all of this together in the sense of the lineage of Christ. If you were to go to Matthew chapter 1, it would pick this up and, and show then it goes on from David to Jesus. To, to, and so this lineage is, is awesome to look at in the sense that God not only restored, not only used these people, but he, uh, he brings about the lineage of Christ through them as he restores them. In the midst of all of this, we have been talking about the kinsman redeemer. And I want to just take a quick Look at that, because this this would not have been possible without a kinsman redeemer being involved. And God put the into law in, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus both, but Deuteronomy 25 is probably one of the best explanations. But the idea of a kinsman redeemer, if a wife husband dies, then a relative of that husband, if they have no children, uh, uh, no male children, and the husband of the relative or the, the husband of the man that died um, would. Now, I'm just going to go back and explain that again. The relative of a husband who died would come back and marry his wife. Uh, then having children, um, the first male child would inherit the original family lane. So in this case, Amimelech died, Naomi's husband. Then. Ruth marries one of the sons of Amimelech, and and the son dies. So when Boaz marries Ruth, their first son will carry on the name of Amimelech and not Boaz and inherit all that Elimelech should have inherited uh, in in his lifetime. And, And so this keeps the name alive and it keeps the property and the family alive. And, and so that's what a, a redeemer does. And so God allows for this. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer in this story. 
He is a type of Christ, means that we see a shadow of Christ in him. His his love is 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 mercy and, and his love for Ruth. Boaz would, in a sense, be a type of Christ. Uh, uh, Ruth would be a type of the bride of Christ. Today, we would say there's Christ and his church, his bride. And so we would say Boaz represents Christ and, and Ruth represents the church. Now, it's not perfect representation. Like I said, it's it's a type. It's a, a shadowy looking ahead to that. To be a kinsman redeemer, we had certain requirements. And one of them was that you had to be a relative. Boaz met that through being in the uh, a relative to Elimelech. Um, you had to be have be willing to be the redeemer, and you had to have the resources, the 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 means to to be the redeemer, because it would normally require buying something or buying somebody out of slavery, buying their property back that had been uh, sold, uh, this type of thing. So you had to be a relative, you had to be willing, the desire to do it, and have the resources to do it. In this case, Boaz fit all of those. But when we look at it, we also understand that to, that the idea of kinsman redeemer goes beyond Boaz. Jesus Christ is also called our kinsman redeemer. And I thought it was interesting to think about how he is our relative. He was willing to do it and had the resources. And especially the area of relatives. Some people will say, how does Christ directly relate it to me? Well, if you want to go to the very beginning, Genesis 1.26, we're created in his image. And so we start there. We're created in the image of God. But we also have in John chapter 114, well, actually go back to the very beginning of John chapter one in the word in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And then John 114, the word became flesh, became a man, became a part of the human race. And so he's a part of the family in the sense of the human race. He doesn't save just one or two. He say he's there for the for the human race in the incarnation. Romans chapter 8, Paul gives some very interesting things to talk about, but he basically says that we are joint heirs with Jesus. We are part of his family. We accept Jesus as our Savior, confess with our mouth, believe in our heart that Jesus is the Christ raised from the dead, that we are a part of the family of God. And so we have all of this picture. We're created in the image of God, Jesus becoming flesh. Uh, and then Paul letting us see that we are joint heirs with Jesus as we accept him. He is, we are, in the family of God. He is the head of the family of God. He is the head of the church, the family of God. In the sense of willingness to do this, I thought the easiest thing to do would be to read a specific scripture uh, going back to uh, Philippians uh, chapter 2. Where it talks about uh, having the mind of Christ. And Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That shows us a picture of Christ and all that he's done, you know, becoming a man, a servant of men, willing to do this. He didn't grasp it as equality with God as something to hang on to. He let go of it. He set it aside and became a man. He was willing to do this. Why? Because he wanted to restore us. He wanted to redeem us. And so we have Jesus as a man willing to do this. And I thought uh, one interesting scripture coming out of First Peter uh, in reference to looking at this uh, was Jesus uh, having the, the resources to do it. In First Peter chapter 1, uh, Peter writes, starting with the 18th verse. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Well, right there, it's, he's, Peter's letting us to be sure to understand you can't buy salvation. You can't buy redemption. Silver and gold won't work. But you were purchased with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but is made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What is it that saved us? The precious blood of Christ. That's the only thing that could save us. The only one who would have the resource that we needed to be saved was willing to do it and came in the flesh, God in the flesh, and sacrificed himself on the cross to purchase our redemption. The only one with the ability to pay the full debt, debt the, the debt that we have because of sin, by the way, what are the wages? Uh, what are the wages of sin? Death, physical death, spiritual death. That's what we deserve. Jesus took that on the cross for us. The full debt, in order to restore the, uh, us to the inheritance uh, that God wants us to have, in the sense of His kingdom and and eternal life. As I was looking at things that I had uh, not quite covered as well as I wanted to through the book of, of Ruth, I noticed that the, the, uh, the one word that I, uh, one thing that I wanted to, to grab a hold of, and it goes back to the very first sermon in the book of Ruth. We talked about the, sac- uh, the, 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 the thread of Christ or the, the, the uh, uh, somebody help me real quick. Crimson thread of Christ, uh, uh, running through scripture that reflects on the, him becoming the, the kinsman redeemer, but also in covenant language in the book of Ruth, we have another word that has to do with covenant love. Uh, it's one particular word. It's called Hesed, H-E-S-E-D. That's, uh, uh, the, Americanized spelling of a, of a, of a word for Hebrew, hesed. 
And we see it come up three different times in the book of Ruth. We see it when Naomi releases their her, her daughter-in-laws in, Rome, uh, in uh, Ruth 1, chapter 8. Uh, and she blesses them. She has said them. She gives them blessing uh, uh, and thanks them for, for their love for her. In chapter 2, verse 20, Naomi blesses Ruth using the same context of the idea of has said a blessing. Uh, covenant love, showing covenant language, uh, love. And then in verses, uh, verse 10 in chapter 3, we see Boaz with his covenant love towards Ruth. And I use the term covenant love, but that's, that's only a picture, a small part of what this word means. It has a very broad meaning in the framework of, of, uh, what God would have us glean from this. Covenant love, God's love for us, a sense of mercy. When God extends us mercy, we are to extend mercy to others. That's part of this word. Kindness, gentleness, loving kindness, steadfast love, a love that doesn't move so that, in a sense, when I give my love to you, it's fixed. It doesn't change. There's nothing you can do to get out from underneath my love. The same kind of love that God has for us. R.C. Sproul calls it loyal love of God. And maybe that's a, a really good way to look at it. The loyal love of God. Another word that we use, probably far more familiar with, would be using in the New Testament, agape love. God's love for us. So it's mercy, it's kindness, it's steadfast love, loyal love of God, covenant love, uh, which means that it's been purchased. Uh, and again, the love that's purchased. God so loved the world that he gave his only son to, that, you know, would bring life to us, give us eternal life. The idea is he's purchased us. Covenant love. God uses it in throughout the Old Testament to uh, relate to uh, God's personal relationship with Israel and now the church. You know, there's a point where God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. And that's the, the basis of this idea of this covenant love. God says, I will be your God. There will be no other. And you will be my people, my people. We belong to him. Well, I was thinking about this and, and, uh, in one of the articles that I read, I, I took some things out of it from R.C. Sproul. I mentioned it already. Uh, but the idea was how would you respond to this? And he didn't give an answer to it, which left it to, you know, kind of a, that thing. Well, I've got to figure out an answer for this. And so uh, I figured the best answer I could give was one from uh, God's word. And one that, again, is going to be familiar to, to us uh, comes out of the book of Micah in chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, verse 6. 
the the heading in my in my Bible, which isn't part of the scripture, but how they divided with uh, little titles, it says, what does the Lord require? And then verse six, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Kindness here, again, covenant love, chesed. We are to love justice and chesed, God's covenant love, kindness, mercy, grace, gentleness, and to walk humbly with your God. So that's where it starts for us. This is what the Lord requires of us. His kindness, his mercy. The steadfast love, the agape love, the unconditional love that he has. I can't wait to get into 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where we're going to tear this apart into detail in the sense of, of God's love for us and what it entails and, the, and how we respond to that. I wrote, again, I told you that I, I was taking things uh, from R.C. Sprawl, a few things from an article he had written. Uh, this was how he had concluded his article. He says, God has shown us unwavering covenant loyalty and love, has said. And we are to show the same in return to him and to his people. We cannot do that without the aid of the Holy Spirit, whom the Lord gives to all who believe in his name alone for salvation. How can we, be tang- how can we tangibly show our love and loyalty to God and his people today by worshiping him and serving others. Well, it begins with the idea of what we just read again out of, out of, uh, Micah chapter six. And, and again, he has told you, oh man, what is good and what to do the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. But I also was, was looking at this and saying, you know, Jesus's own words in, in, in reference to something in this, in this line would be what he told us in, in John. Uh, chapter 13. He's speaking with them, uh, during, uh, the, the, the last supper and, and stuff. And he, and he asked, he says, uh, when he got out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. When I put that together with what I've already shared with you from uh, Micah, I, I come to a kind of a conclusion that I could tell you all I want that I'm a Christian. 
But the only thing that's going to show you that I'm a Christian is that I love you the way Christ loves me. Unconditionally. That I love you more than I love myself. How do we get to that point? How do we get to the to the the idea of of, of that kind of love working in us? Well, we we sometimes take a, a rather easy uh, statement. We say, "Well, we must con- you know, accept Jesus as our Savior." That is absolutely true. We must accept Jesus as our Savior. But there is more to it than just saying, "I accept Jesus as my Savior." Something needs to happen in us. One of the things that, that, that drove me early in my walk with the Lord was a lot of the praise music that we sang. And Psalm 51 is such a song. And let me share with you. First off, not the whole Psalm is in a song that we sang at that point, but a, a good portion of it. You'll see it when we come to it. But verse one of Psalm 51 says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. By the way, that's said again. Your said, your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That needs to be our heart when we come to the Lord and ask him to save our souls, to to receive us into his kingdom. Is that that understanding of who we are. We're sinners deserving death and pleading to Christ to save us. David went on to the words that we are familiar with in the song. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Again, the idea of a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Drop down to verse 15. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So in order to be the Christian that, 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 that Jesus speaks of in John 13, we have to come through a process like this. Create in me a clean heart. Oh, God. Renew a right spirit in me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. So that I can be a child of God. I don't want my old spirit. I don't want my old contentious spirit. I want the Spirit of God working through me. The book of Romans. Paul tells us very clearly, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present our, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may be discern what is the will of God and what it <clears throat> and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, the, the idea of, of, of what is acceptable to God. That we, we give ourselves as a living sacrifice. How often are we to do that? Well, the way this is put together here in chapter 12 of Romans, the, the, the way the verbs and, and all are put together. I'm not a, a Greek scholar by any means, but I'm told that it's put together in such a way that it would be something that we continuously are doing. So it means something that we would do every day. Nothing less than that. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Present yourself to uh, as uh, wanting to receive the mercies of God. Don't be conformed to the world. And that's not going to happen without the Holy Spirit working in you. In verses, in verse 9 of, of Romans chapter 12, he starts to talk about the things that identify a Christian. Let love be genuine. Okay, that brings us back to you will be known by the way you love one another. You'll be known by Christians by the way you love one another. Do you have the genuine love of Christ working through you? When people look at you, do they see you as a person who speaks of love towards people? And how many people do I need to speak of love toward? Well, Jesus makes it really clear. Clear. I even need to speak love towards my enemies. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Instead of speaking evil of someone or, or, or unkind of someone, I'm to speak in such a way that I lift them up and I show honor to them. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Then he goes on and gets specific again. I call this the kind of verses that meddle a little bit. Bless those who persecute you. Bless not and, and don't curse them. And do not curse, excuse me, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All of this has to do with the way Christ's covenant love works through us, the way Hesed works through us. The examples that we see in uh, Ruth of Hesed working is, is to be working through us and how we respond to each other. And, and, and so Paul in Ephesians, Paul in, Reform, in, in Romans and other places makes it really, really clear. In Ephesians chapter 5, 
Paul speaks of this to them. Chapter 5, starting with uh, verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk. And again, we I, I started this part of the section with that idea. Of they will know you are Christians by how you love one another, how you walk with the Lord. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. There's no doubt about it. There's enough things to distract us away from the Lord that we have to work at staying focused on the Lord. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But, in contrast, be filled with the Spirit. It's really important that you understand this. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. If you are drunk with wine, what happens? The wine, in a sense, owns you. You are responding with the wine in you. And, and debauchery is, is acting at the worst, in a sense, in the sense of the worst that the world would do. But instead, in contrast to the way it looks to be controlled by wine, be controlled, be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in Psalms. And hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So all of this picture that we've been putting together here is the idea of showing it to be following after Christ, to be walking in such a way that the world looks at us and says, that must be a Christian. It's because of the way we live our lives consistently, day in, day out, in of church, out of church, in our home, away from home, in our work, away from work. Are we consistent with our faith? Are we the same outside of the church walls as we are in the church walls, the way we talk? Are we the same? Uh, are we offering has said this way when we're face to face? Are we offering it when we're not with each other? One more scripture in Ephesians. We're told to put off the old self and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, this is verse 25 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry. Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor during honest work and his own hands with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. As fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. It's a really important phrase, isn't it? A sentence. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up and fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 
corrupting talk is, is, is the opposite of building up talk. Corrupting talk is anything that tears down instead of builds up. And it has nothing to do with proximity, whether you're in the proximity of who you're talking about or not. And in our day and age where everything is so polarized over so many issues, it's difficult sometimes to, to, to be reminded of this. But it's important that we as Christians represent Christ in such a way that people look at us and say, oh, that person's been with Jesus. Some of the disciples, when they came before the authorities after, uh, after sharing the gospel, they said, oh, it's obvious these men have been with Jesus. By the way they are acting, by the way they are living, the things they are doing, the things they are saying. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And that's the end of that sentence. And so the idea is, is that, you know, these are the kinds of things, uh, corrupting talk, bitterness, if you follow after that, anger, clamor, slander are the things that grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 31 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving uh, one another. As God in Christ has forgiven you. And it makes you think of the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive them as I, forgive me as I have forgiven others. And so we realize all of this plays into this idea of this covenant love, God's love coming into our lives and then flowing from our lives. That's what God wants to have happen. He wants us to walk around as representatives of his agape love in us, his hased love in us, in such a way that when we are around other people, we're talking to them, being with them, they, they realize this person is sincere about their faith in Jesus Christ. They will know we are Christians by our love. By our love, they will know we are Christians by our love. Let's pray. Prayer, uh, Lord, is, is what we, you tell us we can come to you before with a boldness to plead for your mercy and for your grace. And so we come to you, Lord, each of us knowing where we stand with you and, and, and we, <laughs> we know what's in our hearts. We know the things that you, you want to change and there isn't one of us who doesn't need to come before you, confess sin, and ask, create in me a clean heart, O oh God. And so we ask, Lord, just exactly that. We take David's prayer in Psalm 51 and put it into our hearts. Create in us a clean heart, O oh Lord. Restore us in such a way that the Holy Spirit is in us, working through us. That we can bless you, bless our families, bless others. Lifting them up, building them up, building up the body of Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would go with us, cause us to be the witness to those who need to know you, especially right now with so many different kinds of fear running rampant in, the, in our culture because of this uh, virus. That is, And we ask, Lord, for you to break the back of this virus, bring healing and strength 
and give the church the boldness to be a witness at this time. In Jesus' name, amen.